Please be seated. Esther chapter 1 this evening, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. We try to cover a number of chapters on Sunday evening, and so you'll want to be able to not only listen but read along. And then if you don't own a Bible, please consider that Bible a gift to you. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we've just finished studying, they give us a historical record of the Jews that had returned to the land of Israel, most specifically the southern area of Judah and Jerusalem, in order to rebuild the temple, uh, to learn the law in a way in the context of the land that they hadn't been able to for decades and also to rebuild a wall around the city of Jerusalem in an effort that the city of Jerusalem would once again become a capital city for the Jews. And so we uh, it follows that history of the Jews that were willing to come back into the land of Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The book of Esther gives us a glimpse into the life of the Jews who chose not to return with those men back into the land when they were given the opportunity to do that. But they continued to live on for whatever reason in the land of their captivity. And Esther kind of gives us, meanwhile, back at the ranch, kind of a look at things for the Jews. The events in this book occurred uh, between those recorded in Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. It is interesting to realize that the book of Esther is maybe the only book. Somebody else, somebody had told me that um, the book of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon is in the same category. I wasn't, didn't have the time to verify it. But the book of Esther is a very, very interesting book uh, in the Bible in that there is no mention of God by name. And so when we look at that, we think, oh, how can you have a whole book in the Bible where God isn't mentioned by name? I mean, was the Holy uh, Spirit slipping or something? Did he make a mistake in, in giving us that book? The fact of the matter is that it's exactly by the Holy Spirit's design. And the failure to mention God by name in the book illustrates probably the main point of the book, and that is that God is at work even when it isn't obvious at the moment. God is always at work in human history, in individual history. He is always at work even when it doesn't appear to us at the moment that he is at work. And we're going to see that that's true related to Esther. We're going to see it's true of the Jewish Uh, people. It's also true of our world today, and it's true of our individual lives as Christians. I think about as a Christian, you know, we have our eyes opened in a way that those that don't know the Lord, uh, they don't have their eyes open in the way that we do. And sometimes we process life, and having opened eyes can be uh, much more painful 
I think about, sometimes when I think about that, I always think about the old Jackson Brown song related to uh, these eyes. And so, but the, but this whole thing where we see more clearly. And so here we are as Christians and we are, uh, we watch the world, for instance, from a prophetic standpoint and we watch the world just marching right down the line toward God's appointed end for this world. And yet the world is in the world, people that don't know the Lord and don't understand these things, they are completely oblivious to it. And yet it's happening right before their eyes. So God is at work all of the time in in human history. And it's true not only of our world, but also true of our individual lives as Christians as well. And the Bible teaches as much, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, that he is at work in and through our lives. And because the Bible says that he's working all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. And Paul said in Romans 8:28, one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, that we're to know that as a fact. That he works all things together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. He does not say all things are, are good. And we're going to see that tonight when we get in the book. But that doesn't keep God from uh, taking whatever situations we're facing, overruling them for his purposes, and then working them together for our lives. There is no such thing as luck or happen chance or chance uh, in the life of a child of God. Sometimes I cringe. I don't want to make anybody feel super uncomfortable, but whenever a, a Christian tells me good luck, I kind of cringe inside. I'm too polite to go, oof, you know, right in front of them. There is no such thing as luck for the, for the child of God. We don't, I don't need luck. Good luck, good sovereignty of God would be a better thing. Good providence of God would be a better statement. Uh, God really is orchestrating and, and overruling and ruling uh, our lives. And so sometimes we look at certain things that happen in our lives and we wonder why in the world would God allow that to happen to us. And we're going to see with Esther. I mean, she had to wonder why she got pulled out of a life of kind of pretty much peaceful obscurity as a young Jewish woman to being uh, selected by the most powerful and the man in the world to become his queen. And then why upon becoming queen were the circumstances allowed that forced her to put her life at risk? And then how could she know that in the larger scheme of things, God was going to use her to save her people, the Jews, and then further bring judgment upon all of their enemies? And yet that's what he was doing. And so often we are so close to the circumstances, the immediate, we're so impacted by what's happening this minute or this hour or this week or even this year in our lives. And sometimes I assume, I won't put this on you, I assume that God is as impatient as I am or that he is in as great a hurry to accomplish his purposes as I am. And and so when something happens and then it uh, it's it's right there. It's so close to me. I'm so consumed by what it is that's around me. I fail sometimes to give God what he is due. And that is the time 
to work this together for good in my life and the time for me to walk by faith and not by sight to the day comes when it finally clicks and I look back on the last six weeks or six months or six years and I go, that's what you were doing. And I would have stopped you a thousand different times and a thousand different ways along this route. And it would have been a terrible tragedy in the light of what I now see you were up to, but I couldn't see it for years. And that's the way that it is so often. God is always at work and working things together for our good, whether we recognize his hand or his activity or not. He is always active and he is always uh, ruling and overruling life's circumstances and life history to serve not only his God-appointed end as it relates to all of human history, but each of our lives as well. So oftentimes he's hidden, but he is always active. And so often he is working so supernaturally, naturally, that we don't recognize his involvement until later. And that is a great, great truth to grab a hold of. Maybe not in its entirety tonight, have it introduced into our heart or to think it another two feet into my life, make it mine a little bit more than it ever has been before. God is in control. It doesn't mean that he's making decisions for you. It doesn't mean that other people aren't making their decisions and even making bad decisions or that you aren't making bad decisions. He's not the cause of everything that happens in this world, but he has the ability to step in and overrule it and to just be in that place to realize what I am facing tonight that looks like God is asleep at the wheel, looks like I can't make heads or tails of this, any sense of this at all. It looks like God isn't working at all. And to realize one day you'll see the beauty of what it is that he was up to and that he was more busy than we could even imagine all the way through what it was that we went through. And for some of us, it may not be until we get into heaven that we're able to see that's what you were doing, Lord. I think about, I forget the the name of the men now off the top of my head, but I remember uh, reading a story two or three times in my Christian life where there was a particular uh, well-known Christian leader who uh, prayed for something like 50 years for three of his friends to become saved. And he died at the end of this period. Not one of them knew the Lord. Boy, what a waste of time. God, you call me to pray and and that my prayers are effective in the situation. You ask me to ask big because I'm going to receive all of these things and it looks like all of that time goes complete waste. All three of them came to know the Lord after that man's death. Sometimes we won't know until we get into heaven that God was at work in all of these uh, different areas. And the book is a beautiful, beautiful book in laying out this truth. Well, let's get into the book now and how Esther became queen. Now, it came to pass 
in the days of Ahasuerus. And this is the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, and we'll stop right there and get a little bit of an introduction here. In the days of Ahasuerus, this man is also known in history as Xerxes. His grandfather was Cyrus, King Cyrus. His father was Darius I. These two men are well-known figures, secular figures, as it relates to biblical history. They're very, very involved and used by God, though pagan, not godly at all, but again, him overruling people and using them in, in history. So very, very significant people in human history. And so he comes from a very, very illustrious family. He rules over an empire that is so big that it's made up of 127 provinces stretching all the way from India to Ethiopia, from the subcontinent of India all the way to the continent of Africa. Now, that is one gigantic kingdom that is, he is over. Important to realize that, that Israel is one of those provinces that he is ruling over at that time. Now, when we read in the Bible and we remember how Daniel was uh, uh, interpreting the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian empire, and he had this dream of this gigantic image that was in front of him, and there was the head of the gold, gold and the shoulders and the arms of silver, and then the uh, belly of bronze and the legs of iron and the toes, the feet and the toes of, of iron and clay, and how... Daniel prophesied for him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the great head of gold in terms of the purity of the metal and you in terms of your power, but you are not, the Babylonian empire is not going to rule forever. It will be followed by another empire that's represented by the two arms of silver and the shoulders, which we know historically is the Medo-Persian empire. And so this is, Xerxes is over what we, what we now know as the Medo-Persian Empire. In this, by the time this happens with Esther, it's known principally as the Persian Empire. When the Medo-Persian Empire formed, the Medes were the more dominant uh, power within that alliance. But over time, the Persians became uh, more powerful and so it became known simply as the Persian uh, Empire. And so these are the events that took place when Ahasuerus was in his winter palace in Shushan. And Shushan was one of the three principal uh, capital cities of Persia. It is uh, from Shushan, we remember, where Nehemiah served as a cupbearer to a Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the son of of Ahasuerus, Xerxes. So a lot of biblical history, all of this happening at the same, you know, or, or in the same events. And it occurred in the third year of his reign. So he's early in his reign after taking over uh, ah, the reigns uh, of his father Darius uh, I. And so he made a feast for all of his officials and his servants, all the powers of Persia and media, uh, uh, the nobles, 
and the princes of the provinces being before him. So he invites all of the the great leaders, both military and political leaders, from the 127 provinces that he's ruling over. Uh, They are brought into Shushan for the purpose then of showing them the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. So he brings them in and he puts on display all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the beauty and all of the Persian Empire. And in order to do that, it took 180 days in all. That's six months. I can show you everything I own in about three and a half minutes. What do you get a guy like this for Christmas? He just has absolutely everything. So he brings them in, shows them all of this great, great wealth, so much wealth it took six months in order for everyone to see it. Now, from a New Testament angle, it's interesting, and it's one of my favorite verses in the book of Ephesians, talking about the riches of our King, the God that we serve. And it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take eternity for God to show us how rich he has made us individually as Christians because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the grace that has come into our lives as a result of our faith in him. Now, the fact of the matter is he probably didn't bring all of the rulers of all 127 uh, provinces in all at once. That, of course, would have uh, potential to destabilize uh, the empire, and, and, it, and so you wouldn't want to have kind of put it in that place of vulnerability. So he probably brought them in in shifts over the six months, and it took the six months to bring these groups of people all the way through in order to see that. So this rotating schedule over a period of six months, and then all of them were brought in together for the final feast lasting seven days. Now, the purpose behind this great banquet that he gives here for all of these rulers, Scripture doesn't tell us why he did it, but secular history does tell us. And Ahasuerus was trying to excite support among the leaders of the provinces for an invasion of Greece. His father, Darius, had attempted to uh, uh, wage war against Greece, had been badly defeated. And then Darius came back into Persia following that defeat, determined to take on the Greeks once again. But he died before he had the ability to do so. So Xerxes here, Ahasuerus, decides he's going to do the one thing that his father wanted to do, and that is lead the Persian Empire against the Greeks once again. I mean, there's movies on this and history on all of this kind of, uh, of things. And, and so he was uh, putting this, this banquet together so all of these people could come and see all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the beauty, and think, of course we can crush the Greeks Uh, All we need to do is have the will to do so. So it was the idea was to kind of overwhelm them and and set them up to come alongside with this invasion. Uh, Unfortunately for Ahasuerus, 
He would later attack Greece. His entire navy would be destroyed, and, uh, and his army would also be uh, badly uh, defeated. Now, after the uh, 180 days here, uh, so here's the feast that's going on. And when these days were completed, uh, the king then made a feast lasting seven days where he did bring all of the rulers from everywhere all together for these seven days. Uh, for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small. So anyone that was within the city, whatever, you know, the common man could come in. And this party was uh, held at feast in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were blue and white linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen. Blue and white were the royal colors of Persia. And they had the cords of fine linen, purple on silver rods, marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. I mean, the whole idea is just wow. And they served drinks in golden vessels. Each vessel, he didn't want a set of eight or anything like that, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. So that what he, everything is just priceless. He doesn't even have two uh, goblets for drinking of wine that are, are the same. Now, when I, the house that I grew up in, we didn't have uh, two glasses that were the same either. <laughs> it was for a little different reason. Did anybody else have those little Flintstone, Fred Flintstone glasses that you could get and then different scenes and the whole deal? Yeah, we had a bunch of those growing up. Probably go back now and find out they're full of lead and all that kind of stuff, which would explain a lot uh, related to things. So fabulous wealth. Royal wine made available in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In other words, it was without limits. And in accordance with the law, the drinking wasn't compulsory. You could, uh, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household uh, that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So sometimes there were feasts where uh, the ancient uh, rulers, every time they drank, everybody else had to drink. Every time he toasted, everybody had to drink. And, uh, and so uh, all those rulers, Rules were kind of off, off things people could drink or not drink. And Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, this tells us something very important. That means the men are in one place and the women are in another place. In other words, what unfolds next unfolds not in a room where men and women are both present, where husbands are there with their wives, but it unfolds in a room that is completely made up uh, of, of men. And so all of this kind of sets the scene for what happens next. And on the seventh day, the last day of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, this tells us he's drunk. And, and, and he is going to, he, though he is the head of the world-ruling empire at the time, he is going to do a stupid thing under the influence of alcohol. Is it, is it, it's a weird thing, you know, the Bible does not tell us as Christians that we cannot drink. But it does tell us we're never to come under the influence of alcohol. We're going to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's a, it's a very good thing 
to be very circumspect as it relates to alcohol. You know, you realize that in the United States of America, statistically proven that one out of eight people, 16% of the population of this country, who for the first time put alcohol to their lips, will never stop. That's how it's built into kind of just the gene pool and the thing of deal. They're just alcoholics waiting to take that first drink. That's a staggeringly high number of, of people. So it doesn't mean that, you know, the other group of people can't and handle things responsible and all of that. But I think Christians need to be wise about it. I do not like the trend that is occurring in the body of Christ. It's kind of a hip, cool thing, mostly with younger people and in congregations that are pastored by younger pastors, where one of the badges of hipness is to drink and uh, to drink micro-brews and this kind of a deal and to be considered, you know, exceptionally cool or exceptionally progressive as a result of, of that. And I think that um, when that gets modeled by leadership in a church, that it's a great, great mistake. And you, when you realize how many problems are tied to alcohol and there's no need to promote that or to endorse that in any way from a pulpit or from a, uh, a, uh, a personal example when it creates the kind of problems that it does, not just in the world, but also in professing Christianity. And, and so I think if you're going to be a young generation, a new generation, I'm trying to, we're going to try and put our mark on Christianity and we're going to unshackle ourselves from the, you know, teaching of the past that equated no alcohol with spirituality. You know, I think you can pick better battles than that and less complicated battles than that and more spiritual badges of honor to be known for in the next generation. I just say to the youth that are in our group here tonight, if I ever see you throw your call of God away and your witness for the Lord to, in order to be hip and cool in this way, not realizing the mess that can be made of that, I reserve the right to do a Nehemiah on you <laughs> when I catch up to you. To me, it's just stupid and it's childish and it's carnal and... It's just a dumb waste of time, and it's the wrong battle to pick and the wrong time in history. So he's not the last to do a stupid thing uh, under alcohol, but it certainly contributed to all of this. And he continued these. He commanded that these men who were listed here, they were seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Eunuchs were basically uh, men, young men who had been castrated so that they wouldn't represent any danger to the king's harem. Uh, And so he has these seven, and he gave the order to them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. And so uh, he takes and uh, gives this command to bring her in. And uh, Vashti's name means beautiful woman, or it means the best. So he wants to display her exceptional uh, beauty. There is no indication that he's asking her to do anything immoral 
or to do some dance or to do something risque. There's nothing like that that's in the passage. You can't rule it out entirely because of his drunken condition. But at the very least, he's just treating her as a trophy, that she is no different than all of the pillars and all of the gold and all of the couches and all of the goblets. She's just a trophy uh, that, you know, I show off at my pleasure. Only she lives and she breathes and she eats and, and these kind of things. And so it's really a, a kind of a terrible thing to do here. And so he gives the order. Most powerful man in the world gives the order. All right, guys, you know, you want to see beauty? Uh, You want to know what a beautiful wife looks like? All right, send for Vashti. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. She said, she said, no. (laughs) I just love it. (laughs) This is life and death for her. I'm not going. I'm not going to go in a room full of drunken men and stand there with my crown on, I'm not going to do it. And so she's really being forced to choose between her dignity and the command of her husband, and she chooses to, to her, her dignity related to this. Now, there could be some potential reasons for her refusal here. And number one, it was just absolutely improper etiquette, according to Persian uh, etiquette and and. And so usually a king's wife or a high official's wife, women uh, were veiled in public even way back then. And so uh, a humiliation to bring uh, a wife into a room to kind of be oogled by a bunch of drunken men. Now, it's also possible that she was pregnant with uh, Ahasuerus' son Artaxerxes at the time. And so she wasn't interested in being paraded in her pregnant uh, condition before uh, all, of, all of those people. Uh, Ahasuerus would ultimately uh, be assassinated in just a few years, 14 years, I think. Artaxerxes would become the ruler to follow him. Uh, again, the same Artaxerxes who ruled at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, giving Nehemiah the permission to go to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the wall. So she's right and he's wrong, but he's drunk and now his pride has been hurt. And so, therefore, the king was furious. I mean, he was indignant over this and his anger burned within him. So he is infuriated, probably uh, sitting there and drinking and and everything. And the eunuchs come in and say, she won't come. (laughs) Choking on his wine and all. Nobody said no to this guy. And so now here is his wife saying no to him in front of not only the most powerful men in the entire empire, but even the common men that lived in the city of Shushan. And so this would have been a, I mean, just indescribable. You talk about public humiliation. It's impossible to describe the level of public humiliation that has just occurred here. This guy is used to when he says, when he says jump, you ask how high on the way up. And, that, and now nobody refused him. Nobody even hesitated. And then this is, this is what he gets. And she managed to commit three offenses in one action. Number one, she publicly challenged the authority of a man, which was a no-no in the culture. Second, she publicly challenged the authority of her husband, which was a no-no in the culture. And then third, she defied the command of the king. So she's got the 
perfect trifecta going here uh, in terms of getting everyone upset. Now, put yourself in that room, and if I'm in that room and I see the, they come back and Vashti's not going to come, I just start looking down at my shoes. I'm not in this room. 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 Somebody take me out of this room. I, do, I am uncomfortable. I want to get out of here. Here's the most powerful man in the world, and this is happening uh, before our our eyes here. And so, the, because the reflection upon Ahasuerus is, uh, is that if he can't keep his wife in place, then how in the world can he lead an army to defeat the Greeks who had already defeated his father? So he, he's looking at this thing, and it's more than just a public personal humiliation. It's reflecting badly on him on a, a lot of different uh, levels. And so all of the eyes are on him. He, of course, can't let this go unaddressed. And so he then consults with his wise men. And so the king then said to his wise men, this is apart a, a from the party and, and the feast, and he said to the wise men who understood the times, and that means these were men who were astrologers. They would determine uh, a course of action that someone should ch- should take on the basis of reading the stars. And so that's what it means when they understood the times. For this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. And those being close to him, these uh, uh, advisors, uh, they are uh, wise men. They are listed there. And uh, at the end of verse 14, it tells us who had access to the king's presence, and who ranked highest in the kingdom. And so uh, these are very powerful men. This is known as damage control. Would you want to run for the president of the United States? I mean, no matter who's running, it's just damage control all of the time. It's terrible. So that does it. I'm not running. I just want you to know, don't write me in. So this is damage control. You've got the most powerful men in the entire empire come together to consider the ramifications of a single act of rebellion on the part of the queen toward the king. And so he said, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? Now, to be fair with these uh, leaders here and also with Ahasuerus, he is not wanting to know what to do with her on the basis of the personal slight. Uh, his concern is that he is the king, has made a command, and it was disobeyed. This sets a bad precedence for the whole uh, empire. They knew, they knew how to get power. They knew how to hold on to power. This was not a good thing uh, to happen. That was the concern uh, of this uh, group of, of wise men. And uh, Memucan uh, answered before the king and the princes. He said, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, this isn't just a personal affront, but also all of the princes, uh, speaking of themselves, and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. This, this is going to get out, it already has, and the ramifications are going to be huge. And here's the ramifications. The queen's behavior will become known to all women. You know those women. And so they're going to use this as an example, and they'll despise their husbands in their eyes. They'll get a rebellious attitude also. 
And, and uh, when they report that King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. When this gets out all over the place, this is just going to un- upset the whole marriage relationship in the Persian Empire, destabilize it. They said this very day, this is the report of this uh, Memucan, this very day, the noble ladies, speaking of the wives of these uh, uh, advisors, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to the king's officials, once we get home, that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, and thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. We're going to hear about this when we get home from our wives. So they recognize the implications of all of this. And so this is their suggestion, suggested solution. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes. Now, it's important to understand this. Under the Medo-Persian Empire, when a law was made, you could not change that law. And that's why they talked about, let it be as the law of the Medes and the Persians. That was an unalterable law once that law went into place. And so they said, let's make a law according to the Medes and Persians and the Medes, and we'll record it so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall no longer become before King Ahasuerus. In other words, she's deposed as the queen, no longer queen. And then let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, and win the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all the empire... Because it's great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And so this was the suggestion that they gave to him. Let everybody know that she's been replaced, that this is the, uh, the example that's been set. This is what happens when you defy not only the king, but the authority of the home and, and, and this kind of, of thing. And so it would, again, enforce, reaffirm the importance within the empire of wives respecting their husbands, whatever their status is in society, whether they have high position or whether they have a low position. Now, J. Vernon McGee is cute related to this because he has suggested that Memucan at home was a henpecked husband. (laughs) And so he was getting back at his wife by getting this, issuing this decree. I love uh, J. Vernon McGee. I think he's on a little thin ice right here. He had a second cup of coffee before he did his Through the Bible that morning uh, on the radio. So nothing to read into that. But this was what was going on. And the reply, this uh, uh, you know, proposed solution, it pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. And then they sent letters to all of the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, and to every people in their own language, that every man should be the master of his own house. Uh, so now the government gets involved in that and speak in the language of his <clears throat> his own people. In other words, the main language of the home was to be the language uh, of the husband. Now, in that day, the uh, Persian the Persian Empire had a means 
of a, a courier system that was really kind of the marvel of the ancient world. It was very much like what later we later had as the Pony Express in the United States, where there would horses, men would be on horses at these cities every so often, these way stations, and then they would ride to here and ride to there and then take the mail out or take these decrees out. And, and so it was a very efficient system, and so the decree went out. Now, after these things, when the wrath of Ahasuerus uh, had subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what he had decreed against her. Now, between chapters 1 and 2, probably about a three-year period where he went off to war in an attempt to conquer and defeat the Greeks. His intent was to conquer all of Europe. But again, he was badly defeated, so he comes back. Now he's content with just ruling over the Persian Empire. He comes back, and he's not engaged in a war, and he it comes to the front of his mind, I don't have a queen. And so it gets his attention. And there's a sense here that he might be second thinking a little bit his decision of what he did to Vashti. Now, his servants are going to jump in and propose a, a solution to him being without a queen almost immediately because the one thing they do not want to have is have him change his mind, have Queen Vashti come back into power and order all of them executed. So there's a lot at stake here. And so the king's servants who attended him said, Let, here's, here's what you should do. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom. In other words, bring these uh, beautiful young girls from, uh, young women from all 127 provinces, wherever you can find them. And they shall gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters of the palace. Must have been gigantic. Under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was the custodian of the women. He was kind of the overseer of the king's harem. And then let beauty preparations be given to them. And the idea would be that they would uh, be given, uh, they would be properly fed and well fed to look a certain way, be given beauty treatments, also probably taught a little bit about royal etiquette in order to potentially become uh, the queen. So let them come in wherever they come from and, and we'll prepare them so whoever the king likes, she'll be able to be, uh, handle that position of queen properly. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And so the thing pleased the king, and he did so. The decree went out. And in Shushan, the citadel, uh, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And so here we begin to find out a little bit how Esther begins to play into uh, the whole situation. So there in the uh, city of Shushan, Mordecai, for whatever reason, with Esther, did not go back into the land with, uh, with either Ezra or with Nehemiah. And uh, so if people thought it was hard to take that journey, go back into the kind of the relative poverty of the province of Israel at that time. Um, in some respects, it was harder to be a Jew uh, back in Persia at that time, as we're going to see. And so there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. 
He was the son of Jair, the son of uh, Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And Kish, uh, his grandfather, had, had been carried away from Jerusalem when people were taken captive by the Babylonians. And they'd been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So they've been in there now a couple of generations here in this empire. And, of course, the Babylonian empire gave way to the Medo-Persian empire. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. So Esther's name means, uh, Esther is a Persian name and it means star. Uh, Hadassah is, is the Hebrew equivalent for Esther. And so he was bringing her up, his uncle's daughter. So this is his cousin, uh, though he is obviously much older for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And in the Hebrew, it's a way of saying she's a knockout in every way you could see. Beautiful figure, beautiful face. This was one beautiful uh, young lady. And so, as a result of this, we're going to see in a moment, when her father and mother died, Mordecai then took her as his own Daughter, And so it was when the king's command and the decree was heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the uh, custody of Hegai that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. So this was not a voluntary thing that was happening. I mean, there might have been a few that thought, oh boy, this is like... Um, you know, a contest I can get in and maybe at the end of it I'll be the king. The overwhelming, or queen, the overwhelming majority of them were just being grabbed from their families and being brought uh, against their will. And, and so here you, you think about as these women are being, young ladies are being, uh, being grabbed from all over the place, being brought to this place for this entire process and how many of them might have just cursed their beauty on that day. I... I, I, for one, when I see a person, whether it's male or female, and they are an extraordinarily beautiful or handsome person, I almost pity him. Yes, I have pity on you. If you're thinking, boy, I didn't know what he thought about me, but now I do. It seems to me the whole mechanisms of this fallen world are set up to identify those people and destroy them by one of a thousand different ways. And, and here's a very, very sad picture of this. I remember one time uh, I was invited to speak at a retreat and um, it was a large Calvary chapel in another part of the country. And so Karen and I traveled out there to go there and I looked around and I thought, Per capita, these are the most beautiful human beings I have ever seen. I mean, it was just unbelievable, this kind of density of unbelievably attractive people. I came to find out that that retreat that we were doing that weekend, it was a singles group, but it was made up in very large part, uh, the people that were attending it, were part of a ministry called Models for Christ. <laughs> okay. Then I wanted autographed pictures, and I just turned into just a sloppy 
drooler, you know. But, you know, slavish kind of, these people are popular. I'm just kidding, of course. But it was interesting, very interesting to listen, not to a lot of them, but just a few that we got a chance to talk to about kind of the life, the modeling life that they were led into by their beauty, what they faced there, and very painful, painful experiences for many of them, and then, but how the Lord used it to bring them to the Lord. And boy, their, I mean, their zeal for the things of the Lord. I mean, they had seen what was supposed to satisfy you in life and the adulation and the money and the exotic sights all around the world and everybody waiting on you hand and foot and all. And I mean, this is a dream life and they discovered that it wasn't. So they weren't, they weren't the kind of people that were going to be fooled that you're going to find a meaning in life or satisfaction apart from Christ anywhere else. And so it gave them a very, very uh, wonderful uh, single focus related to the Lord. And so here's a time where in, in human history where it wasn't an advantage to be certainly a beautiful woman at that time. And so they were then uh, brought in into this, uh, into this, uh, into this place. Let me see where I, I uh, left off. Verse 9, now the young woman, uh, speaking of Esther, pleased uh, him, Haggai, who was over getting all of these women prepared. And so she pleased him and she obtained his favor. And so he readily gave beauty preparations to her beside her allowance. So even more of this kind of stuff. And then seven choice, the very best maid servants to prepare her uh, for uh, the king's palace and the king, uh, all of this. And he moved her and her maid servants to the very best place in the house of the women. So something about her character and all uh, this appealed to him. She was a person that was beautiful both outside and inside. And Esther had not revealed her people or family uh, that she was a Jew, for Mordecai had commanded her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So that was the closest he could get. She's taken away from him. She's been given to him. It's his responsibility. Now she's in the middle of this thing and he's looking for any way that he can get any kind of news at all. And each woman's turn came to go to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation. Twelve months to prepare these women to spend one night with the king, according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the preparation the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months treatment with oil of myrrh. Wow. Six months then with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. We call that the cosmetic counter. In the, old, in the Bible, it's the preparations for beautifying women. So, I mean, nothing is held back on this. Imagine that. I mean, six months of this kind of pampering and getting ready for it. I mean, it's horrible, really. But, uh, and thus prepared 
Each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the palace. And this is saying that she could wear whatever she wanted to wear, whatever clothes, whatever ornamentation, whatever she thought would be pleasing to the king and get his attention related to her above all of the other uh, women, she was free to choose that. And in the evening, she would go in uh, to the king. In the morning, she returned to the second house of the women. So obviously, uh, he is having sexual relationships with these, a different woman every night, one after the other. And then the woman would return back to the house of the women, to the custody of uh, Shaggaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. And it tells us, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and then called for her by name. So it's a really sad thing that's happening here. She is, is taken in for one night for the sexual pleasure of the king. She comes back out and then she becomes a part of his harem, basically, his concubines. So he's doing two things at once. He is, try, he is trying to pick out a king and he's also enlarging his harem at the same time. It was a terrible terrible thing because with the number of women that he is basically marrying, when in this situation where they would go into the king, they essentially became his property. They became his wife, though not the queen. They could not remarry anybody else. That was it. Once you've been with the king, you were the king's. And so here you've got this situation where now they are in a, in a group that numbers at least scores and probably hundreds of women, and they are going to, most of them, live without ever being brought into his uh, bedroom ever again, and so that they're going to be pampered, they're going to be comforted, comfortable physically and all of that, but they're going to miss everything else that you really long for in terms of not just uh, the sexual side in a normal husband-wife relationship, but also uh, intimacy, growing with another person, all of that. And so it's just this cheap, ugly thing that is, is going on here and the way that the young women are being used. It's, it's a fallen old world. It's a terrible, you know, terrible what was going on. But again, God doesn't say that all things are good. He says He'll work all things together for good. And so they would return... She would not go in again unless called for by name. Now, when the turn came for Esther, uh, the uncle, uh, uh, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing. No, uh, she wasn't going to pick out the clothes or the ornament, ornamental jewelry or anything. She requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And so who, who would know better the sexual preferences of the king than the eunuch over the harem? And so... Uh, she deferred to him as it related uh, to that. And so Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So again, her character impacted everybody that was in the palace. And so she was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of uh, Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women. I want to punch him in the nose. But anyway, that's not in the original text 
or in pig Latin uh, or in any version of it. So, but the queen, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so she now becomes the queen. And then the king celebrated by making a great feast, called it the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in all of the 127 provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. And so the selection was completed, celebration. He's happy and he wanted the whole country happy uh, about uh, all of it. So when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. So you say, well, what do you mean coming the second time? Listen, this guy wasn't going to stop adding to his harem just because he'd found the queen. So he brings in another load of virgins. So the whole thing just continues on, all this going on. And Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now, this is significant because it tells us to sit within the king's gate was an official position in the Persian Empire. So it tells us that probably Esther became queen and then gave Mordecai a position, a government position, that would keep him as close as he could be to her without being in the palace itself. And so now he is able to, on official business, station himself there within the king's gate, the main entrance to everything having to do with the king there in Shushan. Now, Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when uh, she was brought up by him. And in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, uh, Big Fen and Teresh, uh, doorkeepers, they became... Now, don't think, of, um, uh, don't think a eunuch is a midget. So these are, these are big, strong guys. They've just been castrated. And, and so they were doorkeepers related to the king. And, uh, or think of them as dwarfs or something. And they be, over some issue, they became furious and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And we're not talking about the Pentecostal sense of the laying on of hands. They wanted to murder him and assassinate him. The matter became known to Mordecai, uh, who told Queen Esther in turn. Esther then informed the king in Mordecai's name. When an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed that this was true. Both of them were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so the Chronicles were a book that listed all of the main events related to uh, the kingdom and all. And in the presence of the king, this good act done by Mordecai was recorded there. The king does not reward Mordecai immediately for saving his life. You think, boy, I mean, come on. Isn't there like a $200 bonus or something for doing that for the king? It, it, It gets completely forgotten for a time. But again, God is at work in the history. God doesn't want him rewarded for this at this point in time. God has a better way of rewarding Mordecai for what it is that he had done. And so while it looks like everywhere you look here, it looks like God's asleep in terms of what's unfolding here, but he isn't asleep at all. He is working and working and active in the situation 
to produce a result that nobody at this point in time, number one, could imagine they would be facing the situation that they would be facing and that when they did, that years in advance, God was putting the pieces in place for them not only to survive, but to go way beyond that. And so God is active in our lives as Christians. He is active in human history even when we can't see his fingerprints, even when we can't see it, even when it looks like he isn't. And it's a great, great peace to our hearts to understand that. And I go back to where we began. When we face things, I I will give a personal testimony, not of some specific thing, but I will tell you that in every situation I have ever been in, where what God was doing or what he was not doing in my mind, and I had a lot of good ideas for him and suggestions. And I looked and I thought to myself, okay, we missed that window. We missed that opportunity. We missed this chance right here. And and they all look like the golden way to solve or to end the situation that I was in, and he let them all pass. And then as the time would go on, and then I would finally see what he was doing. I was seeing it this big. He was seeing it this big. I just would say to the Lord, Lord, thank you for feeling absolutely free to disregard my prayers and to disregard my suggestions and in counsel to you, and that you continued on to do the great thing that you did. Now today, I'm just like all of you. I'm in situations that I can't figure out right now. I don't understand it. I don't understand how they're going to work together for good. But our history with God in that way makes us realize that He's going to do that and that He is active right now even though we can't see it or recognize it, and that he is always worth the wait in terms of our faith. And that's why the Bible again says, we walk by faith and not by sight. He is always up to something outstanding in our lives. And one of the great things to realize, too, is that any kind of prayer that we lift up to him with a suggestion or two, you know, we're free to ask. We can ask anything of God, and, and we're praying it in Jesus' name. In other words, if this is consistent, God, with the nature of Christ, and this is consistent with your will, that's how I want it. I'm not trying to hold you in a headlock. I don't want anything that you don't want for me. And so when we lift these prayers up to the Lord, I've lost my whole train of thought now on, on the thing. So it's not easy being me. But, oh, I got it back. Oh, there it goes again. Back, good, great. How many can relate? Okay. Whenever he says no to something in our lives, his love is so great, it is always to say yes to something greater. And that is the truth of our God. And that's something that we can rest in tonight and always. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Thank you, Father, for this passage. Thank you for the beauty of the lesson, a timeless lesson. We just pray, Lord, that that lesson would begin its good work in each one of our lives tonight. And we look forward, if you should tarry, Lord, to just heading through the next couple of weeks through this book and letting this lesson have its full impact in our lives until this great truth becomes a key foundation of how we process life, Lord, and how we understand you. Thank you for the book of Esther and the privilege of being able to study it tonight and to do so in fellowship with you and with your Holy Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.